0: Good morning, Oak Ridge. It's good to be with you again this morning. You have a Bible with you. You can turn with me to Mark chapter 14. That's where we'll be picking up where we left off, Mark chapter 14. And in case you are concerned, I have not forgotten about communion. We will get there. We're just switching things up a little bit today. The passage we're looking at this morning in Mark chapter 14 actually includes an introduction to the Lord's Supper, where Jesus inaugurates that ordinance for the church. And so we are going to close our service this morning by observing the table of the Lord together after we go through Mark chapter 14 with one another. I want to pause before we go into the Word and pray one more time. Please bow with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is not silent. You are a God who does not leave your people guessing. You are a God who has spoken and spoken clearly for us. We ask for your help this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in all of us who have trusted in your Son, and by the same Holy Spirit who wrote these words to help us understand and to help us to apply them to our lives as well, so that we can leave this room a little bit more like your Son, Jesus Christ, than when we came in. That's our goal, and we ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know from experience that this is a journey that has us crossing various Terrains, uh, from mountaintops to valleys and everything in between. Uh, the mountaintop experiences are beautiful gifts from a gracious God. Uh, you may have experienced these perhaps uh, when you were converted, when you first came to realize your need for a Savior and He came into your life and cleaned you out, and it was exciting and it was thrilling. Or maybe it was your baptism when you stood up here and proclaimed publicly your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you felt his pleasure in your obedience, and it was a mountaintop experience. Or maybe you've seen Jesus working in your life, or you've seen answered prayers, or you've seen friends be healed. Or maybe you've been to a conference, a retreat, or a, or a family camp, and, and just the, the palpability of the Lord's presence there put you on a mountaintop. It was a thrilling thing. I think that the natural response uh, to these palpable experiences of God's goodness is is a conviction, right? It's a conviction toward absolute loyalty and and joyful service and loving worship. We feel his presence and we say I will follow you anywhere. I am so excited. I will do whatever you want me to do. It's on these mountaintops that that God seems uh he seems too real to deny and too loud to ignore and too good to doubt. And it's in those times that we boldly declare with the psalmist, the Lord is good and his love endures forever. We say that with conviction and sincerity. We feel as though in those moments that there is nothing that could cause us to fall away. He's so real. How could I ever deny this? We almost say along with Peter, where else would we go, Lord? You alone have the words of life. Where would I go? But then there are times when we seem to fall off the mountain. When we trade the mountaintops in for... The dark valleys in life. And these times when God's presence, His power, His faithfulness, His love, they don't seem quite as, as obvious in our lives. And it's those times that we're more likely to cry out with the psalmist, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? We're filled with sorrow. See, well, on these mountaintops, the reality, the truth, the power of God, they inspire us toward faithfulness, right? We will follow him no matter what. But in the valleys, disappointment, doubt, and disillusionment, it can cause that same faithfulness, that same commitment to follow Christ, it can cause it to wane and to weaken. Can you relate to that? In those tough times, it's hard to to feel the conviction and the loyalty to follow him no matter what. It's one thing to be committed to Jesus when the sun is shining. It's a whole other ball game when it's overcast. And in this room today, we're all, I have no doubt, that we're all at varying places on this continuum. Some of us here this morning are yodeling in the Alps this morning. We are on the mountaintop. We are saying, I will follow you, Lord, wherever you want me to go. There are others of us in here that... Um, are probably strolling apathetically through the plains. We're not in the valleys, we're not in the mountains, but, you know, we're we're kind of, we don't feel what we once did. We're going through it maybe by habit. And so I know that there are others in this room who are limping through the valley of the shadow of death this morning. And who feel that it's been a long, long time since you've seen the sun. And it's hard. We're all at various places, there's no doubt, and and I'm convinced that no matter where you are this morning on that spectrum, that God is going to speak to you this morning from Mark chapter 14. I'm convinced he is. I'm convinced he is. Whether you are up in the mountains, down in the valleys, or somewhere below, God is going to speak to you through this passage, whether it's be, be a word of encouragement or affirmation or rebuke. The Lord is going to speak to you here. What we're going to see in this text, if you've read ahead, you know, We're going to see Jesus and his disciples wandering through a valley so dark that it makes many of ours look like the beach. It is a dark, dark valley for this group. And we're going to see two different reactions. We're going to see the disciples fail in their faithfulness to endure and be faithful to Jesus. And we're going to see Jesus model perfect endurance. And we're going to ask the Lord to help us to be more like the latter rather than the former this morning as we walk through the valleys or prepare to walk through the valleys in our life. So we're going to go to reading the passage together this morning in in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12. And just a side note, when we gather together as a body of Christ, it's good to sing songs together about what God is doing. It's good to pray together. Uh, It's good to have fellowship together. But there's only one time in our gathering where we hear the Lord speak infallibly, and that's when we read the Word of God. So it's great. The Lord has put something on my heart. I want to share it with you, and I pray like crazy. It's helpful and to, to understand God's Word. But when we read the Word of God together, we are saying, thus saith the Lord to us as God's people. And so for that reason, we, we revere it. And so I'm going to ask for you, if you're able, to stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning. From Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 12, and it's a bit of a long passage, but as we go through this, notice the darkness of this valley for Jesus and the twelve. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house that he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. "'My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death,' he said to them. "'Stay here and keep watch.' "'Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed "'that if possible, the hour might pass from him. "'Abba, Father,' he said, "'everything is possible for you. "'Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will.' "'Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. "'Simon,' he said to Peter, "'are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? "'Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation.' The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, "'Are you still sleeping and resting?' "'Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer.' Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared, With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one that I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion? Said Jesus. What, you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. This is God's word. Please be seated. It would be difficult to imagine a, a darker valley than what Mark 14 describes here. It's terrible, almost to the point where we actually can't understand the burden that Jesus and his disciples were carrying that day. And as I said, we notice right away that Jesus and his disciples, they respond quite differently to this terrain. Right? We see that the disciples, they, they fail to endure the way that Jesus would have them endure. Now, juxtaposition to that, we have Jesus, though, enduring to the end, in spite of the heavy burden that he's carrying. We want to learn from the both this morning, from the failures of the twelve, but also from the success and the model of Jesus. But I want to start with the negative example. The negative example of the disciples and their failure to stay faithful. In verse 18, they're eating when Jesus announces that someone in the room is a traitor. It's not a big room. They're around this table. There's only 13 of them there. It says, one of you is going to betray me. In verse 19, we have their reaction. They were saddened. It's the same word that is used to describe the rich man. When Jesus says, go, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the rich man went away saddened, depressed, heavy, distraught. These men are saddened by Jesus' announcement that someone is a traitor. And then one by one, they said to him, Surely, surely not I. So simultaneously, these, these men are, are both depressed and defensive. They say, surely it couldn't be me. I am above reproach, Jesus. It couldn't be me, could it? It couldn't be me. And as we go through the text, Jesus warns them about their overconfidence several times. In verse 20, he says, It is one of the twelve. Don't be fooled. It is one of you. And then in verse 27, you all will fall away. Don't be overconfident, men. Surely it's not I say, no, no, it is. It is indeed one of you. The 12 are saying, no, no, we'll remain faithful, Jesus. No matter how deep this valley goes, we are with you to the end. And Jesus responds simply, no, no, you won't. And in verse 50, as our passage closed, we saw that he was proven right. When Mark records simply, then everyone deserted him and fled. Now, back when he's predicting this, you are all going to fall away. You will all not endure with me to the end. Peter, he won't listen, right? He won't listen. He won't have any of it. And he doubles down. He doubles down in verse 29. He says, even if all fall away, I will not. In other words, these yahoos here, they may leave you, right? But not me. No, I'm with you to the end. These guys, they might be weak, but I am strong. I'm with you, Jesus. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Today, no, no, not even today, tonight. It's not that you're going to forget this conversation. It's tonight before the... The rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me. Not once, not twice, but three times, Peter. But Peter, not to be dissuaded, uh, he insists emphatically, the text says, even if I have to die with you, which, by the way, I still don't accept that you have to do as the Messiah. We can't have a dead Messiah, so I'm not sold on that idea. But even if, hypothetically, you had to die, I would die with you before I walked away from you. I am all in, Peter says. I am following you to the bitter, bitter end. There is nothing that would cause me to wane in my faithfulness for you, Jesus my Lord. With these strong words still ringing in our ears, I love how Mark moves immediately to the garden. That's what Peter says. I would never leave you. And then Peter is addressed specifically by Jesus in verse 37. Simon, what did you just say? Simon, why are you sleeping? Didn't you just say you would be faithful to the end and now you can't follow a simple instruction? These strong words of Peter are still ringing in our ears when we get to Gethsemane, and this is where kind of the failures start to begin for the disciples. Jesus, we know, as he comes to the garden, he is all of a sudden overwhelmed with sorrow, he says, to the point of death, because of the burden laid on him that, again, we can't understand. He knows what lies ahead. He knows he has come to bear the sins of humanity and and bear the wrath of God because of those sins. We can't empathize with that, but he knows what's coming, and so he is overwhelmed with this burden. And so he goes to pray, and he takes these three disciples with him, and he charges them, stay here, keep watch, in verse 34. Just, just stay here and keep watch. Instead, we know that they, they fall asleep. And Jesus comes back, he wakes them, he reminds them to, to stay awake, keep watch, and he goes back out to pray. And when he returns, they're, they're snoring again. I love, I love verse 40. I love the how Scripture paints people as we really are. In verse 40, it says, they did not know what to say to him. How would you? Like He he said, stay awake. Goes and prays, comes back, they're sleeping. Does it again. And they just look at him like, I don't know what to say, Jesus. They don't don't have a response. They're failing, and they know it. And after it happens an unbelievable third time, which really Mark uses to emphasize their inability to remain faithful to a simple task, Jesus just says in verse 41, okay, enough. Behold, my betrayer's at hand. Let's get up and go. That's enough. You've got to ask the question when you come to a text like this why are these men, particularly these three men, who had literally been on the mountaintop with Jesus when he transfigured. These three men had been on the mountaintop and saw Jesus transformed before their eyes, the glory of God, the veil was torn back for a moment. They saw, and now they can't remain faithful in the darkness of the garden. I don't care how great that conference was you went to, or that retreat, and and that mountaintop experience that some of us have had the pleasure of of being in, but I don't think any of it compares to seeing him transfigured. This was a mountaintop experience that these three men had, and they can't stay awake in the garden. They cannot stay faithful to the task given them. And we got to ask the question, why? Like, what happened? How could they go from not long ago seeing him transformed to now not being faithful in the garden? How could that happen? Well, I think Jesus gives them an idea and us by extension in verse 38 when he addresses them after he wakes them a second time. He says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And here it is. The spirit is willing, but the body or the flesh is weak. So I don't think, I don't think Jesus doubts their sincerity or, or their desire to be faithful. When Peter says, I will follow you to death, I don't think Jesus says, I don't believe you. I think he thinks that Peter does want to do that. He he says to them, your spirit is willing. That's not the problem. I understand that you want to do this. Your spirit's willing. The problem, though, is your flesh, your body. It's weak. It does not match your spirit. See, by relying on their own ability and strength, their own willpower and determination, the disciples are, are unable to accomplish physically what they long for sincerely, spiritually. They just can't do it. And I have no doubt that there are a lot of willing spirits in this room this morning. A lot of willing spirits. People who sincerely desire to follow Jesus faithfully to the end. I have no doubt. But I also have no doubt there are just as many weak bodies in here as there are willing spirits. The two go hand in hand. And as long as you and I cave to the temptation to, to rely on ourselves to remain faithful to Jesus, we will find ourselves sleeping when we're supposed to be alert. We will find ourselves fleeing when we're supposed to stand strong. Uh, Because, bottom line is, we are not strong enough on our own to remain faithful. Ironically, understanding that reality is the starting point to becoming faithful. As soon as we realize that we can't be faithful on our own, that's when we can actually start being faithful. And this is tricky, because the culture that we live in today is one that promotes the self-made man, right? And the independent woman. That's what our culture celebrates, is someone who is strong, someone who has thrown off the shackles of low expectations, who's beat the odds, and who's rose to prominence and importance with no one to thank but themselves. We say, wow, look at that person. No one helped them. In fact, the world was against them. They still rose from the ashes. We celebrate them. We point our children to them. Look at them. That Olympic medalist, that, that musician, that, uh, that business shark, the Fulbright scholar, whatever the case may be. They did it themselves. I did it my way, right? That's so exciting. Look to them. Find a the determination like that person. And we're inundated with that message. We're surrounded by it. The problem is, as the Bible tells disciples the exact opposite message over and over and over again. The Bible says that we are unable to do it on our own power, to succeed in the ways that actually matter. We're unable to do it in our own power. We aren't strong enough. We aren't smart enough. We aren't creative enough. We aren't gritty enough. Can you think of a more countercultural message In a culture of self-esteem today, the Bible says, "No, you're not. You're not. You're not good enough to endure to the end. As as much as you want to be faithful to Jesus Christ, you are not enough. And the reality is, the sooner we let go of that sinking raft of self-reliance, the sooner we are pulled aboard the unstoppable vessel of God's power. But we have to first let go of the idea that we can endure by ourselves." That's exactly what we see Jesus doing throughout this passage. You know, while the disciples around him, they, they, they fail to remain faithful. Time and time again we saw this, this, this de-escalation of their faithfulness and their failure. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, he endures. He endures and he provides us a model of faithfulness by not relying on himself, but relying on the Father. He relies totally on the Father throughout this passage. I want to point out three ways quickly that he does that. Three ways that Jesus... That the God-man relies on the Father to help him to endure this dark valley that he's in in Mark 14. The first thing that we'll notice is that Jesus trusts the Father's providential control. That God is in control. That he is over top of all situations. That in spite of the, the chaos that was around Jesus in this chapter, he knows that the Father's plan is being realized. He's confident in that. For example, look at the opening verses of our passage when the disciples go to prepare the Passover, in verse 13 and following. So Jesus sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house that he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. We just have to stop there, and this passage is ripe with that. There's all these indications that God is in control all the way through this passage. He's working in spite of the chaos around Jesus. And we have to conclude that if God is in control of this water-carrying man and and this, this homeowner, then he's certainly in control of these wayward disciples and the angry mob sent by the religious leaders. God is in control of every detail of this account moving toward the cross. And Jesus trusts the Father's providential care. But the second thing that Jesus trusts here that's really coupled with the first and is really important to couple with the first is that Jesus also trusts that the Father's plan is good. I mean, it's one thing to trust in God's providential care, right? But what if it's not a good plan? But Jesus here, we see that the plan is is totally good, and Jesus accepts that. God isn't merely controlling unforeseen circumstances. Oh, the mob's coming. Oh, I didn't take that into account. Now we'll switch it up, and he's kind of maneuvering things to a desired end. No, no, God oversees every facet. It's a good plan that reflects the character of him who authored it. And we know that Jesus knew this because we look how all the way through this text, how Jesus refers to Scripture. You'll notice that he always points back to the Scripture. In verse 21, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. This has been planned before. And it's a good plan by God my Father. And then verse 27, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, parenthesis, side note, look how Jesus handles scripture. There are many people today who want to handle scripture in some flippant ways. Well, God said back then, you know, he said some things that, but he didn't really mean it. That doesn't really have to do with a whole lot today. We can kind of read our culture back into the text. That's not how Jesus reads scripture. He says, just as it is written, the shepherd will be stricken and the sheep will scatter. Guess what happens? The shepherd is stricken, the sheep scatter. So we can take notes. How do we read the Bible? How should we read Scripture? Well, how did Jesus read Scripture? How did the apostles read Scripture? They seem to take it pretty seriously at its word. So that's just a side note. Look how the Son of God reads Scripture. Look how he approaches the Bible. Again, back to Jesus trusting in uh, God's good plan. He references Scripture again and again. And then again in verse... 49 as we close the passage, the mob has surrounded him, they've come at him with swords and clubs, and he says, "Everyday I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you didn't arrest me then. Why now?" Then he says, "But the scriptures must be fulfilled." See, Jesus, again and again, is referencing this plan that God the Father had that's unrolling, and he says, "I trust him. His providential control, and it's a good plan." And Jesus knew that this plan included betrayal and arrest and and death. It was all part of it. And he trusts that the Father's plan was as good as the one who authored it. And so he submitted to it. And we see that in verse 36 in this famous passage where Jesus cries out to his heavenly Father, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Knowing that it's a good plan, knowing that it has to happen, I submit to this will. And so Jesus is able to endure this valley because he trusts the God in whose control he is under. And third, we find in this passage that Jesus trusts the Father's power in prayer. With an incredible weight on his shoulders, again, a weight that certainly eclipsed that the disciples were carrying. If we want to compare the two again. The disciples were carrying a weight, no doubt, one that I can't really understand, and they failed. But here we come with Jesus, who his weight certainly is far greater than that of the twelve, and he's carrying this on his shoulders. The first thing he does is he beelines for prayer. You see that again and again. In his weakness, he runs to prayer. In verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus says to his, his disciples, sit here while I pray. Verse 35, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. See, in his humanity, Jesus knew that his flesh was weak. His body was weak, just like that of the disciples. He was no exception. His flesh was weak. But rather than sleeping, Jesus goes to the power source. In verse 36, he says, as we just read, everything is possible for you, God. That's why I'm coming to you. You are all powerful, so I'm coming to you, and I'm coming to you because I need your power, and I trust that through your power, you help with temptation. I can withstand any temptation with your help, just like he warned the disciples in verse 38. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. He needed that help as well, so he went to the Father, said, I need your power. He went to him in prayer. So we see that Jesus trusts the Father's power in prayer. So it's quite a contrast, isn't it? This, they're sharing the valley. They may have different experiences of the valley, Jesus carrying a heavier burden than the disciples, but they're both, they're all in the valley. But the disciples are relying on themselves. They falter, and Jesus endures because because he trusts the Father and not himself. He says, I trust that you're in control. I trust that you have a good plan. I trust that you have power that I have access to through prayer. And because Jesus relies on the Father rather rather than himself, because he recognizes that his body is weak and he reaches out for the divine help that's available, he endures. And he provides us a model for faithfulness in the valleys, when we can't see the sun, when it's hard to remain loyal. No matter what uh, terrain you feel like you're walking along this morning, whether, again, you feel like you're in the mountains or you feel like you're barely hanging on, this passage is is an invitation for all of us to remain faithful by giving us a blueprint for how Jesus remained faithful. And we all need to know this. Even if you are in the even if you are in the highest of high mountains right now, you know and you should know. If you don't know, I'll tell you right now, that won't last forever. Eventually, you come down out of the mountain because that's life in a sinful world. Life in a sinful world is one that goes up and down, up and down. And if you've been told that the Christian life means that you're on mountain uh, mountaintops all the way through, you've been lied to. And you have false expectations of what this will look like. There's going to be ups and downs. And those of us who today are suffering, we're in the valleys and it's hard, we need to be reminded that there is light that Jesus can help us to endure, that Jesus himself endured before us. And so this really is an invitation for each and every one of us to stay faithful by following the model that Jesus has given us here to remain faithful in in the valleys. And so as we close, I just want to suggest what I'll call the, the ABCs of faithfulness to Christ. This is how we endure If you if you remember nothing else, how do I endure? How do I make sure that no matter where I'm at in life right now, whatever comes next, whatever comes tomorrow, whatever valley comes, I will endure because I know that this is the pattern that Christ set out for me. This is the pattern that he himself followed to endure all the way to the cross. How do we, unlike the 12, how do we stay alert and stay strong rather than falling asleep and fleeing? Because that's what we want, right? So the, the first one is to admit our poverty. We've already talked about that admit that we are weak. Uh, counter to what we've been raised with, the culture is telling us we don't have what it takes. We are not strong enough to endure to the end with Christ. We just do not have what it takes. We need to admit our poverty. We've got to come to terms with the fact that we are weak and we need help. And obviously, this is more of a posture of the heart than an action of the hands, right? We have to recognize internally, I'm not enough to follow him with endurance, we have to come to terms with our own inability to stand strong. Our spirits may be willing. And praise God for that. That we have willing spirits. That we come here excited to follow him. We praise God for our willing spirits. But we know from scripture and from experience that our flesh is, is very, very weak. The Apostle Paul spoke to this in Romans chapter 7. And if Paul needs help, I think I can say I do as well. Paul reflecting on his own Spiritual state as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple, as an apostle trying to follow after Christ. He says in verse 18 of chapter 7 of Romans, I know nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Then in verse 24, he includes, what a wretched man I am. If Paul can admit his poverty, if Paul can admit that he can't do it by himself, I mean, that gives me license to admit it as well, no matter how proud I am. I think I, think I can admit. I need to admit my poverty, first and foremost. If I'm going to endure it to the end and be faithful, admit that I can't do it myself. As much as I want to white knuckle and get to the end on my own power so I can stand before the Lord and say, I did it, I have to relinquish that control, that prideful tendency, and say, God, I admit that I am poor before you. Second, we come to our B. That's what we need to believe in His promises. It's a pretty depressing place to stay at. Admit you're poor, and then walk away. No, we don't stay there, right? we we stack on top of that the belief in his promises. And there are so many in Scripture that we can cling to. We just ask one another now, is God our help in times of trouble? Is he our help in times? Is he our ever-present aid? Does he care for us and love us more than we can even understand? Is that true? Does he give us everything we need for godliness? Do we have a high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses? And on and on and on it goes. Does he do those things? And we know from Titus and several other passages in Scripture, he cannot lie. So if he says that those things are true, then they better be true. We have to cling to those things. We have to. Those scripture claims all these things and more. We need to cling to these truths and remind one another of those realities. And we need to shout them victoriously from the mountaintops and whimper them, hopefully, in the darkness of the valley. Wherever we are, you said you will not forsake me. Either you're a liar or you have not forsaken me. You said you will help me endure. You said that you have sealed me with your spirit. You said you have gifted me. You said that I am worthwhile. You have said that I have value. It doesn't feel like that right now. None of those things feel like it. But you said so. I admit that I'm broken. I admit that I'm, I'm completely poor. I have nothing to bring to this table. But I believe what you say about me is true more than I believe what my mind is telling me. And maybe what my family's telling me. What my friends are telling me. What the world is telling me. I'm clinging to the promises that you said. I'm making your voice louder in my mind than every other voice. So how do we endure to the end? Even in the valleys, how do we remain faithful to God? Well, first we say, I can't do it by myself. And secondly, I'm going to believe your promises over anything else in this world. Jesus knew what God was about. Right? He knew that God was in control. He knew that God had a plan. And he endured. And finally, third, we need to call on his power. Just like did. I know none of this really surprises people in here who have followed Christ for a long time. But it makes sense. If we are emptying of ourselves of any self-righteousness, we can't do anything. We need power to endure. Where's it going to come from? It's got to come from above. It has to be divine power. And so we say, God help us. You know, God grant me the patience, endurance, steadfastness that I need. God continue to grow in me the fruit of the Spirit, even though some days I feel like I'm regressing. I trusted that that's not happening. So I'm going to cling to that promise. Give me the power to endure. God, give me a spirit of timidity, not of timidity, but one of power. Give me courage. And we need to be constantly calling on power. I love how, how Bob comes up here and prays, and the first thing he does when he prays for us as a congregation, he just exalts God for his power, his holiness, his, his greatness. And we sing about that as well, because without those qualities of God, we've got nothing. So we call upon this great God, and we say, give us that power, Lord, so we can endure for your glory. Unless we start with who he is and how great he is, we've got nothing. And so we follow Jesus' model. We say, I am nothing. I am nothing. I realize that in my flesh. I am weak. I'm believing your promises over mine. I'm calling on your power to help me. And these are the the ABCs of of faithfulness to God. I'm convinced, you know, that everyone in here, I don't think you would be here today unless you wanted to endure. I don't think you would get up on a Sunday morning and and get dressed and come here unless you wanted to endure, unless you wanted to hear those words on the last day of your life, well done, my good and faithful servant. I'm convinced that there are willing spirits here, no doubt. The question is, are we relying on ourselves? Are we relying on ourselves rather than relying on God? And we have to ask, okay, how do I do that? How do I endure to the end like Jesus did after after his model? And we've seen in this passage that it's by admitting our poverty, believing his promises, and calling on his power. And we see that that's what the disciples failed to do, and that's what our Lord modeled so perfectly. I would say, may we be a people like that. May we be individuals like that, families like that, and certainly a church like that. That individually and collectively we say, God, we need your help. We want to do great things. We want to reach Oakville. We want to reach Toronto. We want to reach our families. We want to reach our friends. We want to grow. We want to be like Christ. All these things. But Father, you've got to work through us because we can't do it without your help. May we be a church that's characterized by Faithfulness to the Lord, relying on His power, whether it's on mountaintops or valleys. No matter what comes tomorrow, may that characterize us as a people of God. May we come to realize that that He is faithful in helping us, even in the times that we are less than faithful. That He is faithful, even when we are less than faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning who are in the valley who are burdened, some of whom are barely hanging on. They are riddled with doubts. They think to themselves, I used to believe this. He used to seem so real. The truths of Scripture used to seem so applicable, and now, having not seen the sun for a long time, I don't know. As a congregation, we pray specifically for those people. Because we've been there, because we will be there, more so because your son has been there. Not in the doubts, but he's been in the valleys, Father. When the the world was against him. Father, may they find strength. Those brothers and sisters who are struggling, may they find strength. May they come to terms with the fact that they can't do anything. That it has to be your power. And may you speak to them anew, your promises, whether from your word through members of this congregation, whatever the case may be, may they hear anew your promises. May you strengthen their backs and lift them back up. Just as fervently, Father, I pray for those in our midst who are perhaps apathetically strolling through the plains, the flatlands. Not in the mountains anymore. Not in the valleys. Kind of ho-hum. In some ways, this is even more dangerous. We know that. This lukewarm status, Father, we pray that for those of us who are in that place, that you would wake us up. By any means necessary, that you would wake us up, make us realize that we need you to remain faithful. And that we cannot do this on our own. And that life trusting you, rather than ourselves, is so much better than the alternative. Again, convince us afresh, Father. And then I pray for those in our midst who are in the mountains, who by your grace are experiencing the joy of following you. They can't get enough of your word. They can't wait to see what you're going to do next. Father, we rejoice with them, and we pray that they don't keep that to themselves, that they share publicly with people who at dinner time, at breakfast, at church, that they share the stories of your faithfulness, because we all need to hear that. We thank you for the individuals lately and and coming up who are going to walk the waters of baptism, who will proclaim from the mountaintop that you are faithful. That you have saved them, passed them from death to life, from darkness to light. May we rejoice with them, and may we be reminded of your power and our need for you. Father, we pray for us collectively as a church as well. We don't know what's coming tomorrow. We don't know what challenges face us from within or from without. But Father, when those times inevitably come, we pray that we as a church would Would stand faithful. We would not flee. We would not deny you. We would not betray you. Father, protect us from the overconfidence that your disciples showed in this text, that we would say, that would never happen to us. We would never betray our Lord. They thought that too, and they walked with him. Father, humble us. May we be a faithful, faithful church, just proclaiming the good news of your Son. No matter what that looks like, give us the strength, we pray. May we cling to your promises to those ends. We ask these things in the precious name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.